The period of the last few years has been a disconcerting one for almost everyone. A global pandemic and the lockdown periods that accompanied it have caused both disruption and a reordering of lives. But for many people, there was also a sense that things weren't quite right, though it proved hard to put your finger on exactly what was wrong. Feelings of fatigue, anxiety and the great overwhelm led writer Catherine May to seek a closer connection to nature's ability to inspire both wonder and something slightly more magical, enchantment. We sat down to talk about play, pebbles and why you never regret a paddle. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the podcast. I wanted to start off actually by asking you a simple definition really of what you mean by the word enchantment well thank you for having me um enchantment i think is a word i'm trying to reclaim really from the kind of unicorn and rainbow realm um (laughs) to me to me it captures a sense of feeling that the world has got a little bit of magic left in it that we can tap into ourselves and i think that's important because the world has felt so drained of magic over the last few years and we're all running on empty. And so I'm using this word to think about the way that we can kind of reconnect with something that delivers us fascination, wonder, or all of those qualities that actually support our good mental health and our well-being as we carry on going through difficult times. As you say, like we've all had a very weird few years the last sort of two or three years and of course it's affected people differently because of their yeah. own individual circumstances but I think there are some things which are held in common and actually for me in particular reading your book there was a, a little section right at the beginning of the book where you sort of describe where you're at and I was like yes yes that's exactly how I felt so in fact I'm actually going to ask you to read it because yeah. I think it'd be great for, for readers to hear this comes from a section in the book called stone and we'll talk about stones in a bit but yeah if you just read me that little section I think it's a great description of, of where my head was at as well <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me really it's nothing but it's also all-encompassing I feel strangely empty devoid of thought and energy I'm not sure where my days go but they go. Every single thing I must do, any hint of a demand, grinds against me. I resent it all. I want to be left quietly alone. I don't know what I'd do in that time, should I ever achieve that perfect aloneness. I like to think I would read, but the truth is, I'd probably sleep. I don't have the attention for reading. I don't have the attention for anything, really. It's so funny because the thing about reading, obviously, as somebody who reads books, and and that's kind of not the definition of me, but it's a huge part of my life. And I really struggled. I almost forgot how to read because I found my attention was wandering and I couldn't sort of commit to anything, no matter how hard I tried. And Mm -hmm. I had to almost relearn how to do that um, towards the end of uh, sort of 2021, I guess it would have been. Um, But yes, that feeling of, of, not really able to put your finger quite on what's going on leads brilliantly to this idea of so then how do we sort that how do we find a way of reconnecting (laughs) with the world and as I said that comes from a chapter called stones which does mention this thing about that simple joy of picking up a stone when you Mm. go and visit somewhere which I used to do a lot when I was a kid I'm slightly scared to now because I worry I'm going to get told off for taking stones from nice places but let's talk a little bit about that grounding element of of doing that 
I mean, it's something I've always done and I've carried on doing. And in fact, my house is like some kind of chaotic beach most of the time that's full of these little things that I bought with me. And now I've got a son who does it as well. So I'm constantly trying to sneak them back out into the garden and repatriate them with the soil. Um, I, it's interesting, isn't it, that we, that, you know, we can start with the idea of picking up a stone because it's such a simple way to reconnect with something that I think all of us felt as a child, which is that very natural falling into a state of wonder at something that the grown-ups consider to be a little bit lame and uninteresting and I I Mm. mean I don't know about you but I spent a lot of time getting told off for staring at a stone in my hand when I was supposed to be putting my shoes on when I was a child um and I you know there's a time when we put that all away but I I think if we can get back to that very simple connection we can make between picking something up and enjoying the sensation of it in our hand being fascinated by it, reading stories into it, you know, seeing a face in it or an animal, um, or thinking about its history and its age or its geology. There are loads of different ways to approach a stone in your hand, but all of them will absorb your attention into something transcendent for just a short amount of time um, and, and push away the cloud of care that we all carry around right now. I always used to pick them up from my sort of travels and I'd try and find a stone that sort of looked like wherever I, I was. You yeah. know, So you'd try and find a stone that looked like the mountain you were looking at or the beach <laughs> that you were sort of staying on. But so that you could, I guess, so that you could take a little bit of that home with you and always have that visual reference. Mm. Um, I don't have many left anymore. I don't think. I'm looking around my, my office right now and I'm afraid I think I may have lost or repatriated some of those yes, stones. Yeah. <laughs> Iceland have actually had to start telling tourists not to take home lumps of volcanic rock because I think a lot of us have got that instinct. I might have a little bit of Iceland on my <laughs> shelf that I took home before I realised that was a thing. Sorry, Iceland. <laughs> you can say it was pre-edict that you uh, took that stone. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, one of the, I think it's the, the the next chapter actually has this fantastic word which is completely new to me, and therefore I'll probably mispronounce it. But the word is hierophany, and I wondered if you could tell me, well, a, have I pronounced that correctly? But b, what does that word mean, and why is it so important in this book? So hierophany is a word that was developed by uh, a sociologist called Mercia Eliard, and it describes uh, a, a sort of physical object that has been imbued with the sacred. Um, and it's used to talk about uh, how simple society is worshipped. So the idea that a stone might contain the notion of of a god or a deity. Um, but I've used it in a different way to think about the objects that we hold sacred and how we might have our own personal hierophanies in our life. And I talk about one of mine, which is the smell of peeling an orange. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about that. So uh, my grandma every afternoon would sit down after lunch and peel herself an orange. And it was this beautiful, quiet ritual as part of our days. I lived with my grandparents when I was growing up. And now, whenever I smell an orange being peeled, I'm transported back to that place and back to that sense, that very particular sense of peace that was in that room and the sense of safety that I had there as a child. And so sometimes when I'm feeling stressed or distressed, um, I will sit down and, and peel myself an orange because actually there's something there's something very soothing, but there's something very sacred about that to me. It's so easy to see an orange as like a dietary obligation and like one of the ordinary fruits that aren't very exciting, that, you know, <laughs> they're one of the three main ones that everyone's got in their fruit bowl. 
Um, but to make some space around the peeling of an orange is a very, very magical thing for me. It's so funny because, again, reading that section, I could smell an orange immediately because mm. I had that, the way you described that sort of, as you say, it's a ritual. And there's something about those daily rituals. It doesn't matter how mundane they are, because I I realized that I tended to have a cup of tea at roughly the same time every day in the afternoon, because there was something about that sort of break in the middle of the afternoon where I would make this tea and I'd have a biscuit as a small treat for all that hard work I've been doing up until that point. And actually, if I don't get to have that cup of tea, I do get a little bit grumpy and resentful. But it's so nice. <laughs> That's to have caffeine withdrawal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> those rituals are really important and it it, you're right it's not about the scarcity or the rarity of the object itself it's actually about our approach to it and how we can bring that sense of reverence like I I'll only make tea in a teapot with leaves and it tastes better in my opinion but also it it makes a longer pause in my day there is a true ritual to warming the teapot putting the leaves in letting them brew for a while and that means that I get a proper break and I'm Mm. stuck there by the teapot so I get to think I'm not on my screen I'm not doing something I'm not talking to anyone and they're they're small things but they they really matter. Um, You mentioned your son earlier and in the uh, chapter about Herophanes you you use a fantastic phrase which really resonated with me which was the shallow terrain of today's sort of child's play if you like that we tend to give children's uh, toys which have a sort of single purpose and Mm. that's all they're used for and then they get put down whereas even I in my childhood remember not having those kinds of toys having to make your own entertainment and therefore invest so much more of your own imagination in play Mm. and could you tell us a little bit about why that's so important to the whole idea of what play actually means? Yeah, I mean, I I think so much of what we give children these days dictates their response and dictates their play. So they don't really have any part in it. And I I think that comes with a whole value system that's hidden underneath those toys, that within that very shiny, flashy, beepy kind of, the the kind of toys that annoy adults to death, but which children, you know, will, will hook onto really quickly. But there's a kind of message that toys are specifically for children and that therefore they get let be- left behind with childhood and so play gets left behind. And they also tell us something different about entertainment, that like entertainment is being distracted for a short amount of time. Rather than getting to know something deeply, and as you I mean, goodness me, we obviously you and I have reached the age where we're saying things like we made our own entertainment when we were kids. And <laughs> I think we should both like slap ourselves over the hand for that before it becomes a habit. But, <laughs> but there is something about um, having to invent a game around a, a slightly more ambiguous toy um, and being able to become an, an expert in something and, and to have knowledge that builds over years that is a very different quality of play. And that's training us how to play as an adult, because that's that's my mo- I'm not really worried about telling people how to parent their kids, because um, goodness me, nobody would listen to my advice on that. Uh, but I, I do think that we need to find a way to carry on playing as adults. And, and we can only find that play in deep terrain rather than shallow terrain. I remember um, my dad's work one time took him to a factory where they made paper and he came home from this day of work with this huge roll of paper 
um, th- you know, that you sort of, you could pull one end of it and yeah. we realised that we could sort of pull that across the pavement and start drawing. And then we realised that, of course, it was endless, this piece of paper. So you could keep extending the landscape that you were drawing. And this was like literally the, the sort of it wasn't even a metaphor. Like we had the biggest possible canvas you could possibly have had for, for a drawing. And it means that what your imagination does after it's done some of the obvious things that you would draw, like an island and then some sea, is then you have to think of something else to do. And so <laughs> yeah. that sort of exploratory play. We were I don't know how many hours we were there with our crayons and pencils and this piece of paper, but it seemed to go on for days. It was just incredible. And it does something completely different to your brain, doesn't it? It really does. And there, there's a specific quality of attention that I think we all know. We know it by feel. Um, and I, yeah, it's hard. It gets harder and harder to sink into that as, as I get older, certainly. And, and I think I've learned to really make the time for it. I mean, I, I think people with creative practices like mine are really playing. We're carrying on seeking that really specific engagement with materials and ideas. Um, but yeah, I it's that's just such a beautiful memory and it reminds me of a story my cousin told me recently that I was very jealous to hear which is that my granddad who was a printmaker um took her into the shed one day and showed her how to bind a book and she was talking me through all of it that they folded sections of paper stitched them and then he sawed the edge to make it really neat wow and she and she was recounting it and she just lit up as she she said it and she said I've always wondered if he did the same for you and that's why you're a writer and I was like, no, damn it, he, he never did. It's obviously the thing you do with the first grandchildren, not the second, right? You're just like, oh, I've done that now. I'm going to sit down and have a cup of tea. <laughs> but it's it's really, I love hearing people's stories because everyone's got that moment when they really connected in deep play as a child and it they can still feel it as they recount it now. I love that. You do write a chapter about deep play and a lot of it reminded me, of, so I used to be an actor, and acting, in a way, is mm. the, the closest many adults get to that kind of deep play, because it is, after all, this thing of absolutely immersing yourself into something, believing that it is absolutely real, and being very confused by anybody who doesn't think that it's real and all the rest of it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, it's, you know, it's, it all happens within a conventional space, if you're in a theatre or whatever. But I, I, I always wonder if there's something about that that playfulness or that ability mm. to sort of suspend disbelief that would be useful for adults to take further into their lives instead of it just being the preserve of idiots like me on stage <laughs> well no because I, I I think that's absolutely right and I I think one of the reasons that creative people are often quite kind of contented compared to people that don't have that outlet is because of that total immersion that we that we kind of get from whatever it is we do and acting is a good example I mean I often think about musicians as people who carry on playing into adulthood like literally playing but I, I think they're one of the few kind of legitimate adult groups who are allowed that sense of play. And there's a sinking in that's involved where you lose a little bit of your conscious self when, when we're truly, truly playing. Um, and there's loads of different ways to find it. But I I can see very clearly how many people lack it and how deeply they, they actually crave it, but maybe without being able to realise that that's what they need. Or how to do mm. it. You offer some fantastic, I guess, tips in a way of, of ways in which anybody can sort of seek that sort of re-engagement with the natural world and therefore maybe to find these moments of enchantment. And one of your chapters is called Take Off Your Shoes. 
Could you tell us a little bit about why simply taking off your shoes can have a really transformative effect on your happiness? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we quite happily take off our shoes on a beach and that's normal, but we don't tend to take off our shoes anywhere else in public unless we're going into a place of worship. Um, and the chapter is really about a day when I realised that I, I just couldn't shift my brain into gear at all. Um, and I walked up to uh, a sort of local field and just suddenly had this urge to walk through it barefoot. And it made me feel really self-conscious. It felt transgressive somehow to to just, it, it felt very visible, you know, like it felt very visibly different. Uh, but I did, I took my sandals off and walked across the grass and it drew me immediately back into my body, which I think was what I was really struggling to inhabit at that point. You know, I was I was all in my head and I was so in my head that everything had kind of jumbled together and got foggy. And taking myself into that different sensory realm and feeling the ground through my feet had such a calming effect on me immediately. And it was partly about where it directed my attention because I did have to think about it. Like I didn't want to tread on any thistles, you know, I didn't want to accidentally, mm. you know, hurt myself. Um, but there was also that lovely massaging sensation of, of your feet over grass and the different temperatures. And I mean, obviously we evolved walking barefoot. Um, there is a, there's a level of feedback that we're not getting in everyday life from wearing our shoes and and it was a, a sort of incredibly soothing moment and something that I you know I've repeated since as long as nobody's watching because people do stare as you say that thing of just having that contact whether it's on grass or I often like to take off my shoes and if you can get your feet into water if you're like near a mm. river or a pond or something because it's often shockingly cold um, yes. which has its own feedback um, and just makes such a huge difference to, uh, I, I guess, how you enjoy the outdoors. Oh, I mean, I paddle everywhere. I, <laughs> I live by a, um, I live by the sea, so I, you know, I probably walk barefoot in public more often than most because you'd go onto the beach and you take off your shoes and socks. Um, but yeah, if I'm by a river or a stream or some sea or by a lake, like I'm gonna paddle in it always because you never regret a paddle ever. It's always good for you. <laughs> That's my there's, personal guarantee. It's a, a good maxim to live by. Um, there's quite a lot in the book about your relationship with the water, obviously because of where you live, but also because of your love mm. for swimming mm. and the things that have actually challenged your ability to be able to do that recently. Yeah. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Because it's really interesting. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I've always swum in the sea. Like, I'm not very keen on swimming pools. Um, but I, over the last few years, I came to realize that I didn't feel like such a confident swimmer. I was an enthusiastic swimmer, but when it came down to it, I didn't feel like my stroke was particularly strong. And that was making me quite often hesitate at the edge of the water when other people were happily going in. And I'd be like, oh, I'm not sure if this is quite safe. I didn't have the faith that I could kind of kick my way out of danger. And I'd had a couple of encounters where I had as a swimmer got into a little bit of trouble not terrible trouble but enough to make me a little bit more wary at the same time I've also got something called Meniere's disease which is a, uh, a sort of inner ear condition essentially which makes me very very dizzy very easily and sometimes floating in water can set it off 
I think mm. I don't fully understand it. It's not a very well researched condition, but I inherited it from my dad. Thanks, dad. Um, and it seems that we talk, we we get to have really good menus discussions though. But it seems that like sometimes my brain gets confused about where level is, and some things can really set that off. So if I'm tipped upside down, that's the end of it for me. I'm going to be dizzy for three days. And sometimes swimming can do it because it just confounds my my sense of equilibrium. So those things had really conspired to to actually keep me out of the water, and and I'd lost my confidence a lot, and particularly during lockdown that got worse because we weren't allowed to swim in the sea for ages um and also having co i had covid very early on and that made my menus worse it because it was inflammatory so it, it made my mm. menus loads worse so i had to really think about how to reapproach the water again actually and how to relearn my or unlearn actually what i thought i knew um and and relearn my confidence in the water relearning is a phrase that's come up a couple of times and we mentioned right at the beginning about books and about struggling to read Mm, uh, because mm. of that weird sort of feeling that we couldn't commit to it Um, and then there's a chapter later in the book when you talk about reading again how have you managed to sort of combat that reading stress if you like and and have Mm. you been able to get back into the groove as it were yeah I'm finally back into my reading groove but it took ages and I had to I really had to tempt myself back in again. Like I couldn't, I couldn't reapproach long, hard books in the same way for ages. I just couldn't concentrate. My attention just kept glancing off them. And also there was something beneath that that was about like the enthusiasm for that in the first place. I, and I mm. still, I'm still not as keen on novels as I once was. I've definitely got back in the stride with my nonfiction reading, but I don't think my fiction reading's still fully recovered. And that might just be a change in me that's come about. But I had to get back in by reading small things first and really unpicking reading and, and consciously relearning how to do it. So I went back to poems which I could I could read one at a time you know (laughs) and I enter articles and essays and short stories um and I definitely lent a lot uh, like harder on audiobooks as well which really helped me to move at the same time as reading um but I yeah I reflected in the book about how that's not the first time I've had to do that because when I started at university I realized that my reading just wasn't equal to the reading that I was supposed to do for my course um and I I had to consciously start reading like a child again like running my finger under the lines until I could get the hang of the syntax and the sheer density of these like impenetrable because I studied sociology and psychology and anthropology um the, the text can be pretty impenetrable and like really dense with terminology you know and you can't skip a single paragraph because you've lost one word and you that's chasing your way through the text um so actually I, I realized I kind of had the skill set to do that but the challenge was really to get over the shame that I felt that I couldn't engage in my reading because not only am I a writer but also my previous job was as a literary scout so I in my you know previous incarnation I was sometimes reading five books a day um, and then suddenly not to be able to finish a book let alone, or even start one, uh, it, it felt shameful, like a bit of my a bit of me was broken. Yeah. 
That's exactly what it feels like. You think, am I ever going to be able to read again? Something that had come effortlessly uh, suddenly became a huge piece of work. I I did a similar thing. I sort of, I started off with shorter novels because I was sort of like, if it's 200 pages or less, I'll consider it. If it's more than that, you can forget it. Like it's staying on the bookshelf. Um, And then I actually found, it was one book I read over Christmas, which was so immediately engaging um, and sort of almost it felt like I was being cured as I read it do you know what I mean I sort of as I was oh, going through it, I was like oh, wait this is just easy <laughs> this is just so and I want to pick it up and I don't want to put it down and I was like yeah that's that familiar feeling so that was thank god it happened otherwise I'd have been out of a job probably sometimes actually we're ready for our reading to change as well and I think those transition mm-hmm. points can be really hard like you know I don't know about you but I'll read through a genre really obsessively and then there'll come a point when I realize that I'm not getting anything out of it anymore. Like I know the format, yeah. I, I've read all the best books of that. And I'm now kind of like scrabbling around for the, for the you know, last dregs of, of pleasure. And those are the moments often when I feel the most lost in my reading, because what do I, what do I go to next? And mm. I do, I also think that as like, you know, the people listening to this podcast will obviously be enthusiastic readers and they'll be book people. Um, and I think that can ratchet up the pressure on us sometimes to read more serious books like to read literary works or you know serious intellectual works and you can follow that for a while and then you get exhausted and actually you need to give yourself permission to read something easy and pleasurable and fun again and I I do I do think like often our literary conversations can push us towards reading that ultimately isn't that much fun and we need to be like given full permission to go back to Jilly Cooper and just have a <laughs> lovely time. <laughs> I was interested to hear that you you found that poetry was a really nice way back into reading. Um, a lot of people can find poetry quite intimidating but also yeah. it seems to me that poetry is one of the great writing art forms for capturing enchantment because it's that yes. ability to really condense a moment uh, into something which is much deeper and much mm. wider. Do you mm. think that that was part of the appeal for you with the poetry? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think once again, like you have to really choose your poets when you're doing that because I can find a lot of poetry really just not very interesting, actually. Like I, this, because, I think because it's so rhythmic that either you can meet that rhythm as a reader or you can't and and it's almost like a binary like there are some poems that I'm never going to find my way into because I can't flow with that particular pattern um Mm. and so the way that poetry helped me back in was actually I had a collection of poems on my phone like I took a little photograph of them and made an album that was just poems that I knew I liked and I went back to the same ones over and over again and became familiar mm. with them. And that, again, like that's another thing that we feel like is a bit forbidden as we get older. You know, we have to keep finding new poets and exploring and, and moving forward. Whereas actually, I needed that recursive loop of reading that poem maybe several times a week and getting to know it really deeply and absorbing it, absorbing what it was telling me. Um, and that that was definitely one of the things that, that helped me um it's such a pleasure to speak to you Catherine um the great pleasure with your book I found was that it takes a really not it's not a meandering course but it's a sort of a slow and thematic and always interesting walk through the terrain that you're sort of (laughs) mapping out um 
And I, I think that that means that there's so much in there that people will be able to latch onto, whatever it is that's going to work for them, whether it's a, a pebble in their pocket um, or a paddle with their feet. As we've already discussed, you will never <laughs> regret a paddle. Um, I just wanted to finish off. There's a little section at the end of the book in the epilogue, which is a beautiful, I think, encapsulation, I suppose, of what I think uh, the book is trying to say. Would you mind reading that for our listeners? I think I'm beginning to understand that the quest is the point. Our sense of enchantment is not only triggered by grand things. The sublime is not hiding in distant landscapes. The awe-inspiring, the numinous, is all around us all the time. It is transformed by our deliberate attention. It becomes valuable when we value it. It becomes meaningful when we invest it with meaning. The magic is of our own conjuring. Such a good way of putting it, I think. Nobody knocked on the door while I said that. (laughs) (laughs) I also remembered, of course, that you speak about taking off your shoes, which is advice which is given to Bruce Willis at the beginning of Die Hard in order to cure his (laughs) tiredness. And he says that it works, but it does mean that that's the reason why he has to spend the whole film running around without any shoes on and walk across (laughs) broken glass. So it's a double-edged sword. I regret to say I've never seen Die Hard, but uh, I, I feel like I ought to. <laughs> hey, this 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 coming Christmas, you can treat yourself to the, the the world's best Christmas movie, Die Hard. Is he wearing a vest the whole time? He Classic Bruce Willis style. For, for, for yeah, much of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's I'm, exactly I'm what you'd expect. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it does what it says on the tin. It's got Bruce Willis in yeah. a vest. I didn't know he had no shoes on though, so I'm now much more curious than I have been before. There you go. I've given you the perfect excuse to indulge. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. So it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Enchantment by Catherine May is out now. And for a limited time, you can find signed copies on waterstones.com. <laughs>